book of Ephesians. I have to confess, it's probably my second favorite book in the Bible, next to Romans. And the book of Ephesians is really a letter that was addressed to the church in the city of Ephesus. And if you're geographically challenged, like it seems most of the world is, you might be asking the question, where is Ephesus? Well, it's actually in modern-day Turkey. And I've put a map on the screen up here for you. So you notice Turkey is up there in that northeast corner of the Mediterranean. And that's difficult to see. Sorry about that. But uh, you'll notice the Mediterranean Sea is blue. And Turkey's up in the northeast part of the Mediterranean. And you'll find Ephesus uh, there in modern-day Turkey. Now, we're not certain when the Apostle Paul, by the way, he's the human author, uh, the Apostle Paul, but we're not really certain when he wrote this particular letter, but a lot of Bible scholars believe it's probably the year 60 A.D. There's various things in the letter that suggest Paul was a prisoner in the city of Rome. He had been imprisoned for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, the prisons were not anything like we have today, not nice at all. And we don't know what particular situations in Ephesus prompted Paul to write this letter. But whatever the situation was, it had produced a very lovely letter. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. And uh, it was a lovely letter that, that really helps us to understand better what God has done, what He is doing, what He calls us to do. And there's some things here he tells us what not to do as well, as well as uh, why God has done what he has done. Let me just encourage you, if you've never done this, and even if you have, do it again, but uh, find some time, maybe this afternoon, I suggest, be a good time, where you read through the whole book in just one sitting. Too often we kind of divide books of the Bible up into, into chapters and you might read, today I'm going to read chapter 1, tomorrow I'm going to read chapter 2, and then you just kind of slowly work your way through a book of the Bible. Well, just remember, this is a, it's a whole letter. So I suggest read the whole thing. It doesn't take long. I'm, I'm a slow reader. And uh, just last night, uh, before I went to bed, I wanted to be meditating on, on the book of Ephesians. So I, I sat down last night about 10 o'clock and read through the whole book of Ephesians out loud, which makes it even slower. And it only took 20 minutes. And I wasn't trying to go fast, so it's, it's not a big book, but you'll find it very helpful if you read it in one sitting. So what's the purpose of this book? Well, I like the way Dennis Mock said it in his New Testament survey book. He says this, I quote, Paul wrote Ephesians to instruct believers on their position and spiritual blessings in Christ and to encourage them to practically live in light of who they are in Christ and what he has done for them. May I suggest if you're struggling with uh, some sort of an identity crisis, Ephesians is going to be one of the most helpful books for you. So for me, I've, I've often struggled with an identity crisis, but finding my identity in Christ is crucial. It's, it's saved me in so many ways. But one of the things you're going to find in this book if, is... Uh, it's really divided up into two parts. And in the first three chapters, we want to look at this question which Paul is answering for us. What is God doing? God is alive. He's a personal being. He's 
he is doing a lot of things, and it's just amazing what we see him doing here. But ultimately, uh, in, in this particular book, the main point that Paul's bringing across to us is that we are united in grace. Believers, that is. All believers are united in grace. And so in these first three chapters, Paul doesn't give any commands. He often does that, by the way, if you ever notice the Pauline epistles. He's got awesome, deep, rich theology in the first part. And then he has application based on that theology. And once again, Ephesians does this for us. So he's not instructing his readers here to do anything in the first three chapters. He just simply indicates what God has done, what God is like, and what we are. So let's just take a a big-picture look at the book of Ephesians here and see what is God doing. Number one, in the first chapter, we see that God chooses sinners for salvation. God chooses sinners for salvation. By the way, let me just say this, because I've already mentioned the word grace. What is grace? Well, there's a number of ways to define grace, but if if you take each letter in the word grace, you've probably heard it said that Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches to you. And they're unmerited. It's it's an unmerited favor on on your behalf. Another way of thinking of it is it's God enabling you uh, to do His will and His purposes. It's a very important word in the Scriptures, and and it's certainly probably maybe even the theme of, of the book of Ephesians. So you need to understand that word. We need to understand that God chooses sinners for salvation. And Paul begins the body of the letter here by praising God for His election of us, of of the true believers. By the way, as we read these first few verses, just take note of something, because you see the word us. The us is not everyone. The us refers to the church, the people for whom Christ died those who have put their faith in Christ alone. That is the church, the believers. As we read this, just keep that in mind, okay? So look at chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise 
of His glory. So my friends, there's, there's so much we could say about this passage, but let me just say this. Do you see here that salvation is not a right that you possess? Too many people think of it as a right. It's, it's something that uh, I just, you know, it, it's mine. <laughs> it's like I inherited or whatever. But now God's not obligated to elect you, but he does. Some people think God has to elect me because he's the one who created me. No, he doesn't have to do that. Instead, what do we see here? In love, he did it. So election is a privilege that you were given because of God's great love. That's all there is. It's not anything that you've merited or anything you've earned. God chooses sinners for salvation. What else is God doing? Number two, he unites all peoples of the earth. All the very ethnic groups of our world can be united. Now specifically, there was an issue in many churches of this time There was this division between Jews and Gentiles. So Gentiles were just non-Jews. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. So there was this barrier because the Jews were were God's specially chosen people and everybody else a bunch of dogs. Well, we see God unites all ethnicities. Paul's calling was to bring the message of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles so that Now the Gentiles could be so-called grafted into Jesus, or Israel, you might say. And so they would become sharers in the promise of God along with the Jews. So it wasn't just the Jews now, it was was all ethnic groups. So the obvious point here is unity. Very important word, unity. So at the base of Paul's message is the unity of Jews and Gentiles, and it only comes in Christ. Look at chapter 2. This is pretty obvious here. Chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. My friends, do you see the unity that happens because of Jesus' death? And so, Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers, have been made one with Jewish believers. How is that possible? Well, by being members of one body. By having been given access to one Father by one Holy Spirit, the Bible says. If you don't believe me, look at verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14. For He Himself is our peace. That's Jesus Christ is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Amen. Good stuff there. And so now together, Jews and Gentiles have, are, are one building, the Bible says, in which there's one God who lives in them by his Holy Spirit. And that's where verse 19 comes in. Look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're going to see in the book of Ephesians that the word one is a crucial key word in this book. So how could there be such oneness? How could there possibly be unity amongst different ethnicities like Jews and Gentiles? How is that even possible? Well, this unity is possible because God's grace eliminates these worldly distinctions that we often put in place. See, in God's eyes, they're not worthy of disunity. So God gives unity. Number three, God gives grace. The only reason that unity is possible is because God gives grace. He enables ethnic groups to come together as one church in Christ. So unity is based on grace. And you might ask, why do we need grace? Can I just do that on my own? Can various ethnic groups actually become one and be unified on their own without grace? The answer is no. (laughs) Ephesians is quite clear on that. In fact, when you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, here's why that isn't possible. Because the Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So your sin immediately creates a dividing wall of hostility. It is not possible for unity in this world until King Jesus comes and sorts us out. It's the only way that Israel is going to be at peace and this world is going to be at peace. And so as a result, mankind is an object of God's righteous wrath because Ephesians 2 says mankind is born depraved. It just means we're totally corrupted by sin. Every part of our being is corrupted by sin. And that's why we need God's grace. So let's read this wonderful passage in Ephesians 2, starting here in verse 1. Verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in once you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Aren't you glad verse 4 starts with a contrasting word? It starts with the word but. Here's the good news. That's how we used to be. 
if you're a believer. That's how you used to be. But verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God gives us grace. Number four, what else is God doing? In Ephesians, we see that God gives faith. God must give us faith because we're not going to get it from anywhere else. You can't muster this up in your own strength. God must reveal the mystery of the gospel for it to be understood. And by the way, Ephesians calls it a mystery. That word mystery, when used in the New Testament, by the way, it just refers to something that, was, that wasn't understood. It was something that was being revealed. It was, it was being brought to light. Okay? It was something that wasn't understood before. There was kind of, we were grasping. Now, now as we come into the New Testament, something we're understanding more. Look at chapter 1, verse 9, for example. Chapter 1, verse 9, which says, Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. The mystery of His will. We also see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that kind of mystery. And God Himself had to reveal this mystery to us. And praise God He did, because you and I would have never figured it out on our own. Never. And that's why Paul prayed for wisdom here in chapter 1. By the way, as we look at one of Paul's prayers, one of the reasons I love Ephesians, there's several good biblical prayers that I like to use as I pray. Let me encourage you, if you've never prayed the Scriptures, look at Ephesians this week. Paul has a couple prayers in this book, and pray them to God. Use them as, as a guide to your own prayer life. So if you ever struggle with knowing how to, how do I pray God's will, or according to God's will, use the Scriptures. You can never go wrong there, because this is God's will. And, and Paul needed God's wisdom, and so he's praying for that here in chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Look at verse 15. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? That is an awesome prayer. And that is one that I pray for you. 
And I hope that you would pray that for one another. So what has God done? Basically this, when you take all four of those points together, here's what God has done. God has united all Christians together in Christ. And only He could have done that. And so in these first three chapters, unity is something that's presented as a fact. So those first three chapters are kind of, they kind of stand alone on by themselves. There's no commands. But the last three chapters, there's lots of commands that God tells us to do, acting upon the great theology. But unity, though, in those first three chapters is presented as a fact. God has made us one. In the last three chapters, unity is presented as a daily goal that you and I are to, to work toward. It doesn't come naturally. Just, God doesn't just zap you and all of a sudden we all have perfect unity. It doesn't happen in this life. And so it's something we must live out and work toward. And as we come now to the second major point, the focus is going to shift from these indicative statements now to the commands of Scripture. So let's see, based upon what God has done and is doing, what should we do? That's what we see in chapters 4 through 6. What should we do? Basically this, live out this unity that God has worked in us. Live it out amongst each other in this world. Well, I'm just going to bring out a few points for you to think about. Just five points. How does Paul exhort us in chapters 4, 5, and 6 to strive toward unity? Number one, live a life worthy of our calling. Paul tells us to live a life worthy of our calling. Look at chapter 4. Look at the command here in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And you say, well, what is that calling? I'm to live a life worthy of my calling, but what, what is this calling? And what does that look like? It's a calling, by the way, to display the unity that God has already given. What does that look like? Well, that's verses 2 and 3. So if you want to know what true unity looks like, look at verses 2 and 3. Because it says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. My friend, you are to live a life worthy of your calling. Number two, you're to build others up. Build others up. Your life is not about you. So Christians must also display their unity by building up one another, helping one another, encouraging one another. And as you do that, you're to put off sin. And it's interesting that Ephesians particularly highlights the sin of anger. You are to put off the sin of anger. And you might, this is kind of obvious, but let me just tell you. Why is anger a problem to unity? It's kind of obvious when you think about it, right? Anger hinders unity. When people are angry at one another, do they have true unity? No way. Is there peace? When people are angry at each other and shooting and bombing each other and so forth? No, there's no, there's no real unity there. So the scripture 
commands us in particularly to deal with our anger. So look at chapter 4, verse 26. Chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. We'll just pause there for a moment. Do you, do you see that? You give an opportunity for the devil to work through you when you're angry. When you are divisive and causing disunity, the devil is using you to accomplish his purposes. I hope you don't like the thought of that. It's a sad thought. So don't give opportunity to the devil. How else can we build one another up? Well, look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The next verse 29 talks about your tongue, your speech. This is how you can build up one another. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Stop there. So there's various ways we see in that text how to build each other up, to encourage one another. Notice it's it's actions, it's words, your life. It, It encompasses all of your being. Number three, Paul's exhorting us in these these chapters to strive toward unity, and he says to make the most of every opportunity. Make the most of every opportunity. Look at chapter 5. Because he says in chapter 5, verse 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Why? Because he says the days are evil. So make the most of every opportunity. See, if you're a Christian, you're to seek unity by living wisely. And God, he's going to give us several ways of living wisely here. You say, well, what does that look like? What does a, a wise life look like? Well, let's read on. Verse 17 says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Another thing we're going to read about in just a moment is we see that Christians should make the most of every opportunity in their homes as well as the workplace. 
And this is where Paul turns in these next few verses. He's going to highlight the home and the workplaces as a place where you are to make the most of every opportunity that God gives to you. So look at verse 22, chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants or employees, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant. Or is free. Masters, do the same to them, these, these employees, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So we're to make the most of every opportunity in our lives, our homes, our workplaces, doesn't matter what our position, our social standing in life is, we're to make the most of every opportunity. Number four, Paul goes on to exhort us here in these chapters of how we are to strive toward unity. And he says to persevere to the end. Persevere to the end. In other words, don't give up. Stand. In fact, he uses the word stand here several times. If I'm counting correctly, he says four times to stand. The idea is persevere. So Christian unity unity will be seen as Christians are standing all the way to the end, whenever that is. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore. Four times we are exhorted to stand, to persevere to the end. Now, let me ask you this. How are we going to stand all the way to the end? How are we going to make it without giving up and crashing and falling? Well, the answer is right in the text. The Holy Spirit tells us to put on the gospel. The Holy Spirit tells us to put on this good news. The good news of God's gospel is your protection. This isn't a physical armor. This is spiritual armor, the armor of God. Look at chapter 6, verse 14. Look at this armor of God, starting here in verse 14. It says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of, notice, truth. Truth is your protection here. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. My friend, you are to persevere. You are to stand firm all the way to the end, without giving up, without crashing, without falling. Don't give in. How can we strive toward unity? Paul exhorts us here to rest in God's sovereignty. Rest in God's sovereignty. Sovereignty is is God's ultimate control over all aspects of His creation, including you and me, the weather, the animals, you name it. We're to rest in God's sovereignty. And before we read here in chapter 6, let me just point this out again to you, that remember the human author is Paul. Paul is sitting in prison. Not a nice place to be. He's an old man. And what does he do here? He prays and he asks for others to pray that God would make him fearless. Of all people, I I see Paul as a fearless man. Apparently he wasn't. He knew he needed God's enabling, His grace to make him fearless. Look what he asked for here. Chapter 6, verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. In other words, I'm in prison. That I may declare it boldly. I want to declare this gospel boldly as I ought to speak. Paul knew courage was something that he needed. He needed it to continue on. He he knew that God's Spirit had to provide what didn't come to him naturally. And so what does he do? He asks for it. He asked others to pray for him in this regard. He knew that sitting in prison was his duty. Sitting in prison was God's will for him at this time. He needed God's enabling, so he rested in God's sovereignty. I'm in prison, and I'm blown away sometimes by someone who can say that whatever state I am, there I am to be content. 
even if that means prison. Even if that means going to have my head chopped off, which happened not long after this. He rested in God's control over his life and over all of his circumstances. So here's the applicational message coming from Dennis Mock. Kind of the overarching thing to think about here. Look at this, if you can see it. As believers, we have every spiritual blessing with which to live a holy life that is consistent with who we are in Christ. End quote. So we just saw in chapter 1, God has given us every spiritual blessing. What has He done that for? Not for us. It's so that you would live a holy life, a distinct, unique, set-apart life. That's only possible because you're in Christ. So we're to live a life that's consistent with who we are, with our identity in Christ. You are a little Christ, if you're a Christian. Well, this wonderful book also tells us what we should not do. We saw a lot of things we should do, but there are some negative commands as well. What shouldn't we do? Well, basically this. Paul's going to tell you, don't partner with darkness. Don't buddy-buddy up. Don't become buddies with darkness, with this evil present world. As we've seen, unity is very important to God. However, we must not seek unity at all costs. We must not compromise and become ecumenical, if you will, to the point where you know, we throw doctrine and truth out so that we can have unity with all peoples. Paul doesn't say that. God is not saying that. And you say, well, why? Well, because there's a wrong kind of unity. There is a wrong kind of unity. Yes, God wants us to be unified, but not at all cost. So look what it says here in chapter 5, verse 3. Chapter 5, verse 3, which says that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." Therefore, do not become partners with them. Light can't partner with darkness. Believers cannot partner with unbelievers. Christ does not partner with Satan. Do you understand that? I hope you do. There, there, there is something that is a wrong kind of unity. And by the way, Paul's not suggesting that the church's chief end is just to be diverse. That is not the chief end of the church. And in fact, if you know the first catechism, what is the chief end of mankind? It is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. That is the chief end of mankind. And so Paul warns against certain kinds of diversity. A congregation or a church should never seek diversity if that means you go and you tolerate sins like are mentioned here, for example. 
And so I want you to see how Paul justifies diversity. Because he talks a lot about unity, but how can you possibly justify diversity or disunity? Look at verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Let me just end by talking about why God is doing everything that we see in this book. Why has God done all of these amazing things? Well, the first thing I want you to notice in chapter 1, it's for the praise of His glorious grace. Over and over again, in fact, I have four different references in chapter 1 where God says, I have done all this for my glorious grace. Let me highlight them for you. Verse 6. Verse 6 says, to the praise of His glorious grace. Look at the last part of verse 7. According to the riches of His grace. Look at chapter or verse 12, sorry. End of verse 12. That it says, We who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Look at verse 14. The end of verse 14 says, to the praise of His glory. How many times does God have to repeat something till we get the point? (laughs) Do you think this is important to God? Absolutely. He says it four times. Why has God done this? It's to the praise of His glorious grace. Why else has He done this? Well, if you look at chapter 2, He says it's for showing His grace. God is displaying His grace to this world. Look at verse 7. Because He says, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. A third reason why God has done all this is for displaying His wisdom. He is seeking to display His wisdom to all creation. So why did God intend for Paul to make these mysteries plain? The answer is found in chapter 3, verse 10. Verse 10 starts with the word so. In other words, he's telling you why he did this. Verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Wow. So why is God doing this? To whom will His wisdom be made known? Well, the basic answer is this. It's to the creatures of God. Whoever these creatures of God are, I I tend to think this is referring to angels and demons. So the good angels and the, the, the evil angels, if you will. These creatures are watching what God is doing in His creation. They're watching what He's doing in His creation. And so God is displaying Himself to the the invisible world, if you will, the angels and the demons, and they marvel. 
And what God is doing is they see His church in action. And the last reason is this. Why has God done all this? Well, it just simply says in chapter 3, verse 20, To God be glory in the church and in Christ forever. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So in light of God's display of His grace and His display of His wisdom, we can't help but praise God, can we? If you understand who God is and who you are in Christ and what God has done, you can't help but praise Him. Why did God make everything? He says so right here. Why did He make everything? It's for His own honor and glory. He didn't make you just for your own honor and glory. It's not about you. It's for his, It's displaying His honor and glory. And so my friends, think about this. God is calling you to reflect His glory by being united to Christ as well as being united to other Christians. And when you do that, God is saying, you are bringing me glory and honor. So may God enable us to fulfill that calling. Let's pray.